Okay, everyone, welcome to the Respect the Math podcast brought to you by Reliable Tech Help. For all your IT needs, call Reliable Tech Help at 502-797-7399 or visit our website at reliabletechhelp.com. That's reliabletechhelp.com. I'm your host, Digital David Snyder. Here at the Respect the Math podcast, we talk about everything from technology to business to science to popular culture and more, basically the things that I'm interested in because I'm kind of selfish that way. Today, our guest is Mike Hall. He's an executive advisor specializing in human analytics. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. And tell us more about yourself and what you do. Well, I am, as as we said, as I specialize in human analytics, which uh, is kind of a a a glorified way of saying personality profiling on steroids is is what I like to do. If you uh, Google human analytics, it says uh, what we, what we do is the systematic uh, identification and quantification of the human drivers of business outcomes. And so what we're really about is, uh, you know, Jim Collins talked about putting the right button, the right seat on the bus. Mm -hmm. We're about getting the right person in the right seat. And we use math and science, which is what intrigued me about your podcast, Respect the Math. We use math and science to do that. So where most people use instincts, we use analytics. Now, can the analytics be guided by instinct and vice versa? I mean, you can have a hunch about a person not being the right fit for a certain role, and then you can apply what you do to reinforce that hunch. Mathematically we, or analytically, we don't replace anything that currently goes into the tr- goes into the process. So all the hunches and guts, you you still need to incorporate that into the regular interview process. And when I say gut, even an, even a resume is gut. Yeah. Because what is a resume other than an obituary? It's, <laughs> it's, it's everything you ever did right in life, and nothing okay. you ever did wrong. That's interesting. Yeah. So if you're if you if you're doing it the right way, at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. your resume is an obituary to okay. where you are to this point. I never heard it worded that way before. I like but that. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And so if you view it that way, it's, it's you're getting the best of anybody. Yeah. Is what happens, and so what we try to do is show you who shows up after the honeymoon's over. Okay. And um, more often than not with my clients and things, I'll, I'll I'll be on the front end just working with them and it goes, it feels like you've had somebody planted in our business for a year. Yeah. And that's really what you're looking for is hindsight in order to make insight. Wow. Insight. Right. I like that. Can you talk about your background, your educational background, your work background? background that you feel has prepared you for this? Yeah. um, What prepared me for this more than anything is I was in corporate America for about 20 years. And then I went into just the entrepreneurial side of things for about 20 years. I spent, uh, I lived about 25 years in Texas, most of that in Austin, which is, you're aware, is a very entrepreneurial place to be. Started yeah. a few businesses there. Particularly um, with the mass exodus from California. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. yeah. Even more so now. Yeah. Even, know, Silicon yeah. Valley 2.0, I guess. It really is. I mean, yeah. and you know, with uh, Tesla building a factory there, Dell's yeah. headquartered there, it, it is a most most amazing energetic place I've ever been. That, Denver is a lot like it. Yeah. Um, so you Absorbed a lot of that creativity and yeah. that entrepreneurial. Um, started started a few that failed. Started a few that had moderate success, and then and then uh, most recently here back in Kentucky, which is where I was born and raised, 
Um, everybody in Kentucky wants to know where you went to school, and that means high school, of course, as right. you know. <laughs> I went to Trinity. Oh, okay. And graduated uh, with my degree in economics and accounting from Bellarmine. Oh, wow. So I had a double major. Um, and that was accounting and economics? Accounting and economics. I was a CPA for 20 years. Okay. So when I was doing the corporate America thing, I was in corporate M&A, things like that, finance. Uh, tell us what M&A means. Uh, mergers and acquisitions. I'm okay. Sorry. So we, uh, we did some... Uh, Acquisitions that got a little bit of uh, got a little bit of press at one time in the early two oh. thousands. That was uh, ranked one of the top ten uh, strategic acquisitions in the world at that time in the banking industry. Wow! Um, and that was when B of A bought um, B of A being Bank of America. Bank of America had just purchased uh, North Carolina National Bank, and we were ranked like in the top five with them in the, in the endeavors we did. And it was with Amex and Visa and things like that. Wow. Um, so I headed up that and uh, then moved into when I, when I started, when I kept making help other people making money, it's like, gosh, I, I want to do this for myself. So I started out on the entrepreneurial side and found out it's not as easy as making, at least for me is not as easy as making money for other people. Yeah. So um Learned, learned the hard way through a few entrepreneurial endeavors. And then just most recently, last October, we, uh, myself and a couple of other individuals had co-founded a real estate firm that we had about 200 uh, single-family rental homes that we had acquired in about a three-year period here in Louisville. Wow. And uh, some foreign investors bought us out. So it's it's the, the terminology is a positive liquidity event. <laughs> so, so we had one of those. Wow. And uh, so it was that serial... That serial entrepreneurism and serial business, yeah. both in corporate and outside of corporate, wow. that led me to where I am now. And it was like, gosh, I, you know, I'm I'm 59 years old, so I've got a lot of hindsight, and man, I've made a lot of mistakes yeah. more than more than I care to admit. Yeah. But what through that is what I found is there's some wisdom to be imparted. Yeah. So what I try to do now is take all that entrepreneurial and corporate hindsight and then apply analytics into the people side of it and actually help people with their businesses. You mentioned the uh, making mistakes. I like to think that success is like the residue of learning from your mistakes. Then I ought to be really successful. <laughs> and very residual. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Now, now that we've talked about your background, which, by the way, is impressive. I didn't know half of that. You know from being the inside, on the inside of the corporate structure, you know how all that works. You know how to be an outsider in terms of starting your own business, growing businesses, working in different sectors, and so forth. That's very interesting. Tell, um, tell to our listeners how they can reach you and interact with you if they want to learn more about your services. Best way to reach me is candidly through LinkedIn. Or you can, I love just picking, I'm a guy that likes to talk to people. I just says, as you may have figured out already, yeah. I like to talk. So give, give me a call. My phone number is 502-303-2164, and I would love to talk to you about it. But my LinkedIn page does a nice job of explaining it, what human what human analytics is, yeah. uh, what some of the benefits are, uh, reasonable expectations around it, and things of that nature. I'm assuming they can go more into detail about your academic and um Professional work mm -hmm. history there, yeah, too. Yeah, it's all there. Do you have a specific URL at LinkedIn.com, or is it just type in Michael Hall? or Michael G. Hall. Okay. okay. Michael G. Hall, yeah, LinkedIn. And, you know, Michael G. Hall, Louisville, because there's Mike Hall. Mike Probably a lot Hall. of Mike Halls out yeah, there. Yeah, a lot of Mike Halls out there. And yeah. Believe it or not, there's more than one Mike Hall doing analytics, too. So Yeah. Well, let's dive deeper into the DOTS process. We'll talk okay. about that and what you're doing now. Um, I've heard you compare what you do to um, uh, Moneyball, the approach that the Oakland A's used for a while mm -hmm. to try to 
Uh, I watched the movie. It was fascinating. The idea was they're going after all major league baseball teams are going after all these high profile home run hitters and athletic specimens. And the idea should be to get runners on base as many as you can, even if you have to bunt or walk your way on there. Wasn't that kind of the, the back the backstory of that movie and yeah. explain that a little further and how does that translate to what you do and how you can help people? Well, officially I, if we, since we are going to follow Moneyball, that would make me Brad Pitt. Okay. So, of course. So, yeah. Yeah. Naturally. Absolutely. And, and I would think he was playing be, your, he, he was playing your character. Yes. Yeah. There should be no mistaking that who I am. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so with that aside, yeah. so yeah, Moneyball was about the introduction of analytics into professional sports. So now if so it wasn't just baseball, it was, yeah, it, it happened first in baseball is my understanding. Okay. And with the Oakland A's, it was yeah. a small market team that had to compete with the likes of the Yankees and the Red Sox and stuff. And they were, we can't outspend them. Yeah. We've got to outthink them. Yeah. So what they did is they invented basically and introduced analytics into the game of baseball. Now you look at, if you watch professional football at all, you know, AWS is out there saying, well, there's a 2.6% chance that this individual is going to make this catch at this interval. It yeah. Just, Isn't it incredible? It's been, We're it's bathed been, in data. We are, we yeah. are. So what we do is we take data relative to seven work related traits. We analyze that data and the interrelationship thereof as to how you use it as a predictive factor as to how you will perform in your job. And we also use it to align. If you want to go back to a baseball analogy is, you know, they, they're very specific about are you a right-handed batter or a left-handed batter or your right-handed pitcher, left-handed pitcher. Well, what we do is we make sure is if you want a right-handed pitcher, you got one. You don't, you don't make a right-handed pitcher throw the ball with his left hand. Okay, that's a good analogy. If you think about it, it's just a good exercise to try. If you, with your dominant hand, write your name three times. Just sign your name real quick three times. Okay. And then do it with your non-dominant hand. Yeah. You get it done, but it's more stressful. Yeah. It it takes more effort, and it's not as pretty. Now, eventually, you could remediate yourself to be some semblance of what you are with your dominant hand, but you'll never be as good. Right. Well, that's what we do is we try to say, what are the seven work-related attributes in their interrelationship that play to your strengths? Instead of focusing on, let's fix a weakness, is what are you strong at? What are you really good at? And where would you fit within an organization to best perform for them, optimize your skill set, as well as promote the corporation. Can you uh, elaborate on those seven traits? Yeah, yeah. We look at them, and again, it's. let me tell you what we don't do. Let's start with what we don't. We don't look at IQ. We don't look at EQ. We don't look at anything clinical. I can't tell if people are artistic or not. But what we do look at is a measure of mental initiative or assertiveness uh, is one of them, uh, inner ego, Interdirected ego would be all those synonyms for one I could think of. We look at social ability. Just are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? And what are the all the elements around being an introvert or an extrovert? Because to say that, people think they understand what it means. But when you study the differences between the way introverts and extroverts learn, think, work, what they desire, seek, and need, it's yeah. very different. Yeah, it's a commonly used term, but probably misused more than appropriately used, I would think. And, and definitely not understood to the depth of what it truly means. Yeah. Um, we also look at the pace that people like to work. 
uh, how fast, whether they're multitaskers or are they serial processors? Do they like, do they like, how do they like working? Do they like working with their door open or closed? Do they use one of these people that want to be in an open workspace or do they need an office door? Yeah. Those are the things that matter. And then uh, detail orientation. You know, if, uh, like I said, I was an accountant for years and um, you would hope that an accountant would have some modicum of detail orientation. You would hope that a good lawyer would have would have a lot of detail orientation, mm-hmm. which in turn makes them kind of a perfectionist, which in turn kind of makes them a conformist. Mm-hmm. All that stuff kind of interrelates. Then we look at a mental emotional stamina, um, the extent to which you are you employ sympathy and empathy in in the workplace. You know that you are sympathetic or empathetic, how logical you may or may not be, and how creative you may or may not be versus innovative. Um, innovative is something I define as is building a better mousetrap. Okay. Creative is inventing that mousetrap. Have we touched all seven yet? We have. Okay, so run down for the audience the seven just in a row, real quick. Mental initiative, social ability, pace, detail orientation or conformity, mental stamina or emotional stamina, logic, sympathy, and creativity. Interesting. Okay, those are things that. When you think about it, when someone brings it up, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. But how many people are actually looking at all seven of those when they're trying to evaluate the people in their in their company for, for promotions or finding the right? Exactly. It, uh, it, and what most people don't realize is the inner relationship of those seven, like how much mental initiative you have yeah. relative to how much detail, how detail-oriented you are, yeah. can determine whether you're innovative or an inside or outside-the-box thinker. So there's hundreds or thousands of individual co- combinations of mm-hmm. each of those seven. Exactly. I mean, you could have somebody who's, you know, on a scale of one to ten, a ten when it comes to empathy, sympathy, a three when it comes to um, emotional or, or mental stamina. Right. You put all those together and you figure it really, really in- individualizes each person. Right. And there's so many ways that you can interpret that and understand that. Um, we think there's about 665,000 different iterations. Oh, there. that's interesting. I want to know that number. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Roughly 665,000. Give or take. Right. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and that gives you some insight into the complexity and the depth of your process. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very fascinating. You mentioned something earlier that made me think of a Dr. Phil uh, podcast episode when you mentioned uh, multitasking. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the uh, episode he did on increase, increasing your productivity by at least 40%? No, I'm not. He said you have to you have to determine. There's he said there's no such thing as a multitasker. He said he said multitasking by definition is never productive. He said people think that they're multitasking and being efficient, but they're not. He said that less than one percent of the population are what are called super taskers. Okay, these are people that can actually juggle multiple important responsibilities and do them all to, to the level that each requires without okay. comprom- compromising each. Uh, the other tasks mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying and he said go ahead and assume you're not a super tasker and try to um, consolidate your daily routine down to a handful of things that you need to do one mm-hmm. by one sequentially um, to make yourself the most productive he said if you can do that if you can properly label yourself as not a super tasker which mm-hmm. most folks aren't, aren't so you can get an instant boost in your productivity Does that sound like something you can bring to the table when you're um analyzing uh people yeah, I'm going to, I'm in, you know, who am I, but I'm going to respectfully disagree with. Dr. Please, Phil please do. That. Yeah, uh, please do. It, uh, 
about 50% of the world can is what I would call to varied degrees. Again, of course, there's know, a bell curve on all this, right? Exactly. Yeah. We, we measure everything on a bell curve. Right. So we're talking nth degrees here, but about 50% of the population is indeed what we would see is like, they like variety in processing. So maybe that's another way to look at okay, it. Okay. That is a good word. Is it's not that I'm not doing one thing at a time. It's that I need variety. It's I'm going to do a little bit here and then a little bit there and a little bit over there. And what you need is a lot of people that need that variety need the pressure, the internal pressure that that causes because without urgent, without an urgency, there's not importance in their mind. Yeah. Well, without having a bunch of things to go at once, there's not feeling that sense of urgency. So therefore it's not important. Yeah. So surprisingly huh. more often than not, it's a little counterintuitive is people that have a tendency to procrastinate are the ones that are most in a hurry. Sure. And are most apt to multitask because if you give them something too far in advance, yeah. it's not urgent. So therefore it kind of falls off the list. It's By definition, which makes them a procrastinator, right? Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. So that that's kind of some of the stuff we do. Some of the other stuff we do, you can tell if... Uh, just by the relationship of the of the seven attributes, you can tell if people are inductive or deductive reasoners. Okay, talk um, about that. What is that? What's inductive and deductive? Inductive, inductive, intuitive is an experiential learner. Somebody that has to sensory feel, taste, okay. feel, hear, smell, has to experience it to learn. They have to be immersed in it. Experiential learners. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and you've heard of people having great intuition. They can walk in a room and read a situation. Yeah. They can't tell you how, but they experience and learn. They can smell it. They don't yeah. know exactly what right. it looks like, but they can smell it when it's there. And a deductive analytic is somebody that says, well, I started at point A, I went to point B, and then to C, and yeah. then to D. Yeah. <laughs> and then when I got to D, I noticed that D should have been a prime number. Okay, <laughs> so it's right. deductive analytic. Interesting. And so different people in different positions, in different positions in particular, have different requirements around should you be inductive or deductive. Wow. So back again to more than just, well, do you have a lot of a mental initiative? Well, do you have mental initiative and are you an outside the box thinker, which makes you innovative? Yeah. And are you a deductive analytic person with mental initiative? Wow. So you can get into all those types of things and you really start to hone as to the, 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 the preferred, again, we're talking about analyzing people to their strengths Yeah. to like, wow, this is how this person rolls. Yeah. And then what you do is we take the same set of analytic tools and we assess what does the job require. Right. Because it's all well and good to know that you're a right-handed pitcher who has a heck of a curveball. Right. But how do I know when to deploy you if I don't know what the job requires? Wow. So then we, we have a system of analytics that you attributes, about 60 different attributes that you rank on a scale of 1 to 10. And what it does is it produces an ideal of those 665,000 iterations. It says, based on what you said, and you, want, you need to do more, the, more of these, mm-hmm. more of these than just a few, but you yeah. get a few people to do this and you look for commonality and you say, oh, based on those attributes, this is kind of what you're looking for. Okay. I want to come back and talk more about those seven specific traits, but I also want to touch on the actual process. You... Mm-hmm do it remotely or in person and you guide someone through an analytic um, evaluation of their personality traits. And of course it's dependent on them being honest, Mm -hmm. right. And having a little bit of insight about themselves, knowing how to answer the questions. 
uh, in a representative way. Can you talk about that process, what it looks like, how long it takes? And Yeah. Um, in, in, in my case, what, what, we, what I'm doing is I've got two questions that I ask. And it's, it's, you know, it's computerized. I would send you a link, and there would be two questions I would ask. Um, it takes the average person, and we've done over 10 million of these. It takes the average person about seven minutes, eight minutes to answer these two questions. Oh, so they're pretty geek. Can you divulge the questions, or is that a trade secret? It's, that's a trade secret. That's fine. You know, that's, 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 fine. that's a secret sauce. But, so uh, for the people listening, go talk to Michael, get in touch with him, and you can find out for yourself. Yeah, and what I can tell you is two questions, eight minutes, expect impact. Yeah, because wow. it has yet to not completely astound people as to how could you possibly have known that? Yeah, it's not, it's not dirty little secrets or things like that. Right, it's, it's you know it's a self assessment, but it is but they're poignant questions, and they yeah. You've taken the assessment. I have. Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, you gave me so much insight into myself. Some of, some of it made sense and rang true, and other parts that were like, wow, I didn't realize that about myself. Um, I highly recommend it to anybody even if it's not not for a professional purpose just to take it oh, yourself yeah. and and you're in I'd the numbers yeah you're in the numbers game you're just trying to give as many people as evaluate as you can and see mm-hmm. see if there's something you can help them with exactly. i i greatly enjoyed the process i enjoyed interacting with you and i learned a lot about myself um so if they want to find out more about that just interact with you on linkedin or call mm-hmm. your call your number and we'll give that number out at the end of the show again um there was something you did in a presentation i saw you do recently can you talk about that? You asked um, you asked questions, and I think you were trying to filter out one or two of the seven traits by doing mm-hmm. that. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. What um, one of the attributes that that we measure is uh, conformity. Yeah, and conformists are have and again. This is just one of seven, but typically, what conformists are is they're they're very precise. They're very expert. They're very letter of the law. That's I found right. myself in that boat, by the way. You were during yeah. the exercise, which yeah. is good for what you do. I would, I would want a conformist, detail-oriented person for certain roles. For certain roles, yeah. and for relative to what you do, and you've done tremendous work for me. Well, thank it, you. Is I would want exactly what you are, right. To do that, and so what we did is I simply uh, threw out a tool, and I and I left some ambiguity around it, and simply divided the room in, into basically as the people that I knew, because all the people in the room had had taken one of the assessments i knew who the people were that were that had a lot of detail orientation were perfectionist and were conformist i knew who those folks were Mm -hmm. and i kind of put them on one side of the room and uh put the put the group that uh it's the spirit of the law not the letter of the law that matters thank for forgiveness instead of asking for permission (laughs) a little bit of non-conformity here maybe some maybe even be a little obstinate you know that kind of stuff and they have a place too they have a place too they they're more apt to think outside the box right we need that so what exactly at the right time in the right place right so what the exercise to your point was was i simply said okay think of uh three letter body parts and all the conformists came up with about somewhere between 11 and 15, depending on if you use fat and gut and yeah. some words that we probably shouldn't say on this podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but they, the obvious ear and toe and right. eye, that kind of stuff. And then and I was in that boat. Then the nonconformist, I was like, how many did you guys get? And I think they said 22. Yeah, it was a lot. It was, I was like, what, what, what are you coming up with here? Are you making up words? Or are you using yeah. other, they, they could have used other languages, I guess. Right. That's exactly it. Is yeah. like is so. The first question I ask is, well, is two to three letter word? 
Yeah. It is. Yeah, absolutely. It has three letters in it. That's right. So that makes foot a three-letter word. Yeah. That makes ACL, MCL, PCL. Three-letter. Okay, I didn't say human body parts. I said body parts. So that makes paw on an animal a three-letter word. So outside the box, people that don't adhere to a set of self-imposed rules will be more innovative in their thought process. That's what I mean by thinking outside the box. And as, as evidenced in this little study we did this little survey we did this this other group that doesn't adhere to the letter of the law yeah had double what those that did yeah i can't remember if i told you this or not but i thought that was so brilliant on your part well i uh, stole it oh that's fine hey <laughs> uh imitation being the sincerest form of flattery it i was. mean there's yeah yes, there's yes. nothing nothing new under the sun yes you know half the brilliant people just got the credit for it when a lot of people pro- probably thought of it originally kind of thing. But no, I thought it was such an um, eloquent and illustrative way to um, take people on a journey and then at the end really show them what you do and how it relates to everyday folks that don't understand the various terminologies that you use, the inside baseball terms that you use. Um, and if you really think outside the box, I mean, you said a body part. Well, a car has a body you could say a door, yep. a car door is technically, yeah, because right. you didn't say exactly three num- three letters. I said three letters. Yeah. So like you said, um, I thought that was just so, um, so interesting and, and compelling. And it, it really made me think, you know, outside the bo- box, which obviously, if generally speaking here, I'm more on the conformist side. I came <laughs> up with the very, like you said, strict letter of the law examples. Can you elaborate further on both of those categories, the conformist and the uh, person who thinks outside the box. What are some examples of roles in general in the business world where each of those would be a good fit? And then maybe you can go a little further into detail on some specific specific roles where you've identified in your what you do professionally uh, where those people are good fits. Well, and let's just talk about you know you and I are a member of the same uh, business networking and we can mention chapter. It. Plug it. Yep. We're, you and you and I in our chapter is a great chapter called Power Partners. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the group as the division, as the divisor of, of who was in the conformist group and who wasn't, the conformist group had um, a doctor, mm-hmm. a couple lawyers, yep. a tech guy. Yeah. Was um, the accountant in that group too? The, I'm assuming? the tax accountant was in that group. Yeah. And so you the think the banker too. The bankers. Yeah. Uh, the mortgage broker. Yeah. <laughs> and people say, and I've had people argue before, it's like, well, Mike, I've seen plenty of creative accountants. I said, no, you don't. Creative accountants go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> or they're on their way. They're yeah. on their way. One yeah. or the other. So yeah. there, there's creativity and then there's, you know. That's interesting. I want to talk about that more in a minute. Yeah. So that that's everybody that was on that side. If you notice, there were a lot of, we had a, a theater person. We had several marketing people. Yeah. They were on the conformist side? On the non-conformist oh, that's side. Okay, that's I'm what sorry, I would expect. I yeah, 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 yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, on the non-conformist side. So people that were, you, you would view as less, we had a lot of business owners uh-huh. that were not in the legal, accounting, technical, or financial field. On the non-conformist side. On the non-conformist side. Because what happens is, is what we have found is the top, leaders in companies typically can't be confined by all the rules. It's back to, well, how did they think of that? They're mm-hmm. inter- they're, they have to be innovative and they have to have some willingness to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. And so the higher up in the leadership totem pole you go in bigger businesses, the bigger your business gets, the less detail orientation, now, barring a CFO or something like that, right. you need. So you, you need 
a, a modicum of detail and we and sure. know about how much that is. Yeah. But it's really important that you don't have people that are leading a company down in the weeds. Yeah. I mean, do you want the CEO of, let's say, a, a giant automaker, do you want him to make sure he knows how to change the oil and tires on all the cars that he that are built. Not a productive use of his time. Right. So yeah. he doesn't need that level of detail orientation. Right. He needs different things. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, as far as, what are what are some counter examples? It's obvious to think of the theater person, uh, the business owner that's not tied down, some, some technical process to be thinkers outside of the box or nonconformist. Can you think of any counter examples to that? Some people that showed up in those groups that you might not expect? That are outside the box thinkers. Yeah. So if you you split the room into two groups, mm-hmm. uh, conformist and nonconformist. Mm-hmm. Were there any people when you placed them there? You're like, oh, maybe they they they, they should have been in the other category. And you know, I, and this is, or did I, they I got, struggle in the category you put them in, possibly? Or you know, th- this is going to be a little, uh, little little self promotion pat on the back because that, I knew that's every, why we're here because I knew everybody's dots. Okay. And, and I've been doing this a while. Yeah. You kind of get. You start thinking in dots. Okay. You start dreaming in dots. Yeah. And uh, and so I was, though, you know, a couple of years ago when we first did this, I might have been surprised. I don't recall not instantly going. Matter of fact, I don't think I really looked at anybody's dots other than to verify that I had them on the right side. Because you have an instinctive. I, I just kind of, yeah. you, you, you learn things. Now, does that mean that, you know, one of the things I do in my workshops is at the end of the workshop after a two-day immersion into all of this and i mean real depth and it's like it's like an immersion course for a foreign language mm-hmm. and um at the end of it i typically ask okay you guys are now some proficiency some level of proficiency on doing this so yeah. i haven't told you guess what my quote-unquote pattern is and nine times out of ten they misguess the pattern really and my point is to them is and I still do the same thing for the first time I meet somebody. Yeah. Is as much as you think you're tuned into people, is people are really really good at not letting in that first couple of interactions. Yeah. Really let through who they really are Facade. and who they're going to be over time. And I don't yeah. think it's pretentious, and I don't think it's malicious. Yeah. Um, it's just human nature. It's just human nature. You don't let you. And and again, what I show in a two day workshop is a very different side of who I am really sure because i have to be for that two days i have to behave differently than i'm quote unquote hardwired yeah so there's I'm a context is there a contextual environmental element to it i too yeah. i guess yeah. as well yeah, yeah. interesting you, you mentioned dots a lot tell people what dots means um all, all we do is we we graph the seven attributes on a, a standard xy Graph. Two-dimensional uh, two, Cartesian plane. Yep. What is, and, is dots an acronym for something? Or? No, it's just oh. literally where the plot is. Is Okay, you know, where so literally the dots as dot they... Resides on the plane. As they're distributed on the... On the on the bell curve. So okay. if I, you know, if I've got mental initiative in the 95th percentile, I've got a dot that's plotted at the 95th percentile on the graph is all it is. Okay. Can you talk about some of the costs that businesses are incurring and not, not even realizing it most of the time by having the wrong either the wrong person in the right position or the right person in the wrong position or some other combination because it really boils down to, like you said, fine-tuning what that person needs, how they think, 
what's sufficient motivation for them. And then you got to find all that, mm-hmm. speak to them in a language they interpret and understand clearly. Mm-hmm. And then you got to put them, your job's not done. You got to put them in the right position, doing the right. right thing. Can you talk about what it costs a business um, when they do the, the wrong combination of those, uh, those characteristics? It, it, there's cost all over the place. Uh, let me give you a positive example versus one that everybody kind of jumps to turnover. Let me give you a positive example. Um, there's a client, that has a sales force and had two sales leaders. And what what we were looking at was one sales leader happened to be an inductive, intuitive person, and they teach and manage differently than the other individual mm-hmm. who is deductive analytic. Mm-hmm. That's just, they're just different people. Mm-hmm. Not right and wrong, not good and bad. Yeah. Different. Yeah. And about half of the inductives team was doing well and half of the deductives team is doing well. And you looked at it and said, wait a minute, everybody that's doing well under the inductive guy are all inductive learners themselves. And the Imagine. deductive guys aren't doing it. Imagine that. But the guys under the deductive side, they're the ones that are doing well are the deductive guys. Yeah. So why don't we do this? Why don't we take all the inductive learners and put them under the inductive manager? Yeah. Put all the deductive learners or salespeople and put them under the deductive manager. Just by doing that, sales went up 20%. Wow. Right person, right seat. Yeah. And so does that translate directly, I'm assuming, into employee morale oh, and yeah. productivity, less time theft, less... Less, less everything. We, uh, we have a, a fellow BNI individual uh, that, gave a, that gave a resounding testimonial the other day, talked about, gosh, you know, for all these years I've been working in my, he's a particular franchisee, yeah. I've been working in my franchise all these years and have been striving to make work a fun place to come to be. And he goes, my team actually enjoys coming to work now. Yeah. We look forward to coming to work. Yeah. And he, I know that's something that it's a testament to him first and foremost, Yeah, but secondarily, you know, we were just kind of there at the end to help, uh, help the flower finish blooming is to get him over that hump. Can you talk about that some more? Cause that's a specific example. I think people would like to, you don't have to get if personal information. It's not necessary, mm-hmm. but what industry are they in? And, and there it's a franchise that's in the painting industry. Okay. So they do both commercial and residential painting. Okay. And, um, there, there was again, nothing, wrong with their organization at all I, I think they were a great company they were great they are a great company they're growing yeah. they're doing they're they're incredible successful um there was just a matter of they had right people in the right places but what you also have to do is to get the right person in the right place then you also know how, how to motivate them yeah. and communicate with them yeah and what we found is that that's where the greatest opportunity was for this particular uh, company was it's not that you don't have the right people but your communication styles and your motivation manners are not optimizing yeah. your workforce and consequently not lifting them up. So they were running a smooth process. It just needed to be tweaked and fine-tuned mm-hmm. to be even more productive and yeah. efficient, right? And now people enjoy coming to work. So give, wow. I can give an example. Um, introverts, typically, we'll just use that general term. Introverts are not people that generally want the Employee of the Year award. They don't want to be traipsed up in front of the entire company, be it a company of seven or 7,000, oh. and have the award. It's in, They don't like that. They so like recogni- private, private recognition. Oh, that's a great distinction. So this particular company had, had a, a sales rep that is an introvert that's just crushing it, yeah. doing great. Yeah. And 
everything they were doing is what you would think a, a hard charging salesperson would want was just that public accolades. Sure. And, and it turned out this is not what this individual wanted. Wow. Um, and so their productivity and their just their general optim optim oh gosh their optimal outlook on life at work yeah was increased simply by the fact of recognizing I need to speak to this person differently than I do a person that's not an introvert. What a great example. Um, and there's so many moving parts. That's just yeah. one of them. You know, it, it's it's really about the platinum rule. And, you know, you asked me earlier in the podcast is, how did I get here? Yeah. At the end of the day, how I got here is I, I, day by day, a little by little, and then all of a sudden at once, I looked in the mirror and it's like, this is, I'm really a selfish guy. <laughs> I'm just really a selfish guy. Okay. And that's not something that I'm proud of or want to be. So, uh, you know, lot of lot of personal work to try to be other focused uh-huh. and um, you know the golden rule says treat others as you want to be treated the problem is is with those 665,000 iterations yeah 95% chance that if I treat you the way I want to be treated yeah. I'm mistreating you yeah what if you're a sadomasochist then I, the golden I, I, rule I, doesn't work <laughs> right <laughs> So, yeah. so we do the platinum rule yeah. and the platinum rule is treat others as they want to be treated. Okay. So, you know, the, the ability to, it's not a public acclamation for an individual sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it is. Yeah. Sometimes little things like, okay, we're these unilateral statements of, oh, we're going totally remote. Yeah. Not everybody's built for totally remote. All yeah. the extroverts, they, they're, they're shriveling. Yeah. I mean, big, big extroverts. They need it's that like they interaction. Need people. Yeah. They need people. That's yeah. the glue that holds your company together. And if you've got them over in a hole behind, you know, just by themselves, they'll shrink. You mentioned the platinum rule. I think that dovetails nicely into uh, the aspect of one of the seven traits being sympathy and empathy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that and how, how that applies to the workforce and give some examples? Yeah, empathetic people are the ones that can read a room. And, and I understand the definition of empathy and sympathy is to be different is empathy is the cognitive understanding of, wow, I'm really sorry that you had a death in your family. The understanding and the compassion to appropriately handle that. Mm-hmm. I understand sympathy to be, and now I'm going to cry because of that, because I'm taking on that emotion. That's an interesting take on it. So we differ between empathy and sympathy. Yeah. So empathy, empathetic people are very good at reading rooms. Uh, really empathetic people are, you, you've had a guest on your, on your podcast, Brittany Murphy. Yeah. Brittany's highly empathetic. Yeah. Brittany's so empathetic, she doesn't set, read the temperature of the room, she sets the temperature of the room. I've heard that recently a couple of times. Yeah, she, she's yeah. really good. I've she's heard that phrase. Very empathetic. Yeah, she is. So charismatic, but also sweet and kind. And yeah. Uh, will make you feel like you're important when you're talking to her. It's interesting. Uh, for as long as I can remember, I've always enjoyed talking to people about what they believe and what they think, and then even more so why they believe and what they, why they think or how they think, why they think it. Um, you mentioned sympathy and empathy. That was an interesting uh, articulation I hadn't heard before. I have one that actually I um, informed a psychologist about, and okay. she never thought about it that way before, and she told me I was wrong, and I was like, well, maybe I am. And then I talked to her a couple of days later, and she's like, you know what? I looked it up, and you're right. So I'm going to throw out my definition of it. Okay. And I, I consider myself to be a naturally empathetic person as well. Um, for me, sympathy is, oh, your father died. You know what? I lost my father last year. I know what that feels like. I feel really bad for you. Mm-hmm. Empathy is, oh, you lost your father? Well, I haven't lost my father yet, so I don't know what that feels like, but I can imagine it. It feels terrible. 
I feel sorry for you. So sympathy, I think we're saying the same thing. We probably are yeah. just different. Yeah, different, different. But yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So empathy, in my opinion, is the ability to manufacture sympathy. Essentially, you don't have to have gone through what the person went through yourself to feel sorry for them, to have compassion for them, and mm-hmm. so forth. So um, I always, I, I just think that's an interesting way to look at it. I, I think a lot of terms are misused. I'll give you another one. Is uh, this probably comes up when you're talking about introverts as asocial. Uh, excuse me, antisocial. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most misused words in the English language. Well, he doesn't like to talk to people. He's antisocial. No, an antisocial is a sociopath. By definition, the term antisocial means you don't conform to social norms and standards. You're a sociopath. That's what it is. The term is asocial, someone who uh, doesn't require a lot of social interaction mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. And um, so it's interesting that me being a student of a lot of sciences, but psychology being at the top of those, I just think psychology is fascinating. I took several courses in college on uh, psychology and couldn't get enough. What you do is psychology and math and economics and uh, business all wrapped up into one and all these moving parts are talking to each other and working with each other. Um, It's money ball. It's money ball for your business. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another phraseology you might like being that, that you like the, that aspect of it, um, there, the, there, this is a misnomer. There is no such thing as passive aggressive. Oh, talk you, about that. You can't be both because that what we're really measuring is mental initiative there, how assertive or how passive you are, or how proactive or how reactive you are. So you can't be both. And they're complementary terms, so by definition, yeah, they can't be. They can't be the same thing. But what you can be is passive defensive. Okay. If you are passive and a conformist, you will defend yourself as a perfectionist. So somebody will go along. There. Let's say you've got this unassuming, uh, unselfish, peaceful, and agreeable person just going along, getting along, and all of a sudden one day they blow. It's like, well, that's passive defensive. Okay. Because they're passive, but what they're defending is the fact that it has to be absolutely right because I'm a perfectionist and conformist. Interesting. And so you just stepped outside the box. You stepped yeah. outside my lines, and that's where they get defensive. Or it accumulated over time, yeah. and then it just yeah. exploded. But it is a passive defensive. There's no such thing as passive aggressive. So it sounds like you're a person in your own life who studies people, who's thinking in this terms is what, of psychology and sociology, right? Yeah, this is what the dots do. I mean, this yeah. is all about what human analytics does. I know? remember the first day of the first uh, um, semester I took of microeconomics, I was hooked. I was like, there's, a, there's it, yeah. a science behind decision-making. Yeah. There's a science, there's a, pr- a process you can follow in mathematical formulas and principles yeah. that you, get, you can use to predict people's decision-making. Yep. Even at the individual level, I just thought that was fascinating. I ruined the curve for everybody in that class. I think I got, I think I got like a ninety-nine, and I was the one. Yeah, and I was not the greatest student, but the things I was interested in, then it's game on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Let's elaborate some more on some of the other personality traits because I I think you can really go deep on those. What's another of the seven we haven't talked about in great detail? We talked about inductive versus deductive, Mm -hmm. sympathetic, empathetic. Um, What are what's another one we should? Shine some light on it because I know um, we can go deep on that. You know, the I think the mental initiative one is is a big one. It's it's probably the 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 two most important attributes that I look at are mental initiative and conformity. Okay. And uh, mental initiative. This is where you find out. You know, you've you've heard of type A personalities. This is where you're you're. I'm I'm borrowing from that phraseology. This is where you're kind of measuring to that degree as to what extent, all the way from, you know, literally somebody that might be in the second percentile on mental initiative, is someone that is horribly meek. 
that is docile. Okay. Um, versus in the 98th percentile of, of this is belligerent and arrogant. Okay. So those are the two extremes, and both of those are virtually unemployable if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's coming down into where do you reside on that level of mental initiative. And mental initiative also is relative to what your time construct is. Yeah. So if you are on mental initiative, if you're below the, if you're below the 50th percentile, your time construct is in the present. So you're very much in the present. Okay. So if you're unassuming, unselfish, peaceful, agreeable, humble kind of person, um, you, your mindset is in the present. But if you are above the 50th percentile, there's, again, very degrees, mm-hmm. but you're really, you're proactive, you're visionary, your time construct is future. So if people are thinking about, if, if you, I don't know your dots off the top of my head, but if, if when you think, if you think of, gosh, where am I going to be in a year or two years, or I want to check this out before I get, if your future construct, then you would be, you would have considered to be above average mental initiative. Okay. Would that also be described as a self-starter or? Mm-hmm. Okay. Confident, competitive, independent, self-starter. How yeah. do you, how do you motivate those people? Um, the, uh, a person with a lot of mental initiative, and this is what we do in our two day immersion workshops. I mean, this is where we really get into the depth of things. Real you quick know, on the workshop. Is that after you took the dots for people at a company and then you've is that the, kind of the next step? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. We'll come back and talk about yeah. that, but go ahead. Um, so, you know, and there's ways to motivate and communicate with everybody. Um, somebody that has a lot of a mental initiative is somebody, the very first thing they want to know is what's in it for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's just call it what it is. Compensation, recognition. Bingo. Okay. You hit it. And, and, you know, and put my trophy up on the wall because I do, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, yeah, but compensation, recognition, power, money is power. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, as defined by somebody with a lot of mental initiative. So that, yeah. those are some examples. So those are things that you use to motivate them. So that when you speak to someone that has a lot of mental initiative, the first thing you do is you tell it what's in it for them. Yeah. Let's talk about the other side of that curve. So that person's not a self-starter. How would you describe that person? How do you motivate that person? Those those individuals are typically team players, and to the extent that they're to the extent they're leaders, they're servant leaders. Okay. So if you've ever watched National Geographic and seen the special on wolves, I have the have pack you, mentality. Have and all you that? seen how the alpha wolf leads? Yeah, from the rear of the pack. Oh, okay. So all the weak ones go before him, and then the strong ones, and then the alpha wolf leads from the rear. That's huh. a servant leader. Talk about that more. Is that because uh, I, when you say he led from the uh, from the back, I'm thinking he's sacrificing all the weaker ones first so they go into battle. But that's not how that. No, he's let, he's making sure they get where they're going first. And he's not he's leading. Steering. He's steering. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's at the back of the boat steering versus in the front of the boat pointing. And so you motivate that person by creating a team environment. You tell them what's in it for the team, and then. Huh. What's their role on the team? Do these people typically desire more social interaction in their... That's not what we measure. It's uh, independent. It's a different trait. Okay. It's a different independent trait. Yeah. Interesting. But they are more team-oriented. It's about the we. One is about the me. One's about the we in the simplest terms. You know, an example of what's in it for me that comes to mind is the brain surgeon. You know, if you have an aggressive form of brain surgery, it'd be nice to get the kindest, most empathetic... Um, uh, purely motivated brain surgeon who happens to also be really good. That'd be nice, ideal, right? But if your scenario scenario doesn't involve that and you have two options, the best guy or gal, right, mm-hmm. um, who's 
the best in the world, but is also only motivated by the fame and notoriety of being the best and the income and the lifestyle or the other person who's not as good, but they're really kind. Right. Mm -hmm. And they, they do it for all the right reasons. Yeah. The money's nice, but they want to help people. Which one are you going to choose? The good one. I want the guy who's better, the guy or girl that's better. Right. It's you bring up an interesting point is only about 15% of the world has the ability, has the hardwired ability or their, their dots line up in such a fashion that they are both empathetic, social, and detail-oriented conformist enough to be a doctor. 15%. About 15% of the world. So what happens is, is most people are either a conformist or social. Interesting. And so you mentioned the medical world um, with doctors and other medical specialists. There's a lot of... Uh, that don't have good bedside manner. Yeah. Because you want... The expertise, the yeah. perfectionist. That's what I want as a perfectionist. Yeah, and that usually doesn't get handed out in the same dose, right? right. I mean, right. it's unusual to it's find. Very some. unusual. It's about fifteen percent of the time. Fifteen percent. Are those people unicorns, so to speak? I mean, is that kind that's of that's a term I use? Is unicorn or superpower? Yeah. I mean, if it's fifteen percent of something, it's you know, it's definitely not the, the majority. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd like to also talk about uh, some more uh, the traits we haven't gone deep into. What's another of the seven traits that uh, is interesting we can talk about? The introvert-extrovert element. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, an introvert wants to be, you know, is wants that one-on-one recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, They also, criticism falls on them. They take it personally. Really? Mm -hmm. So so even constructive criticism is, is, is taken personally because more often than not, they're simply trying to do the right thing the right way for the right reason. That's their that's their self view. So restate that. Trying to do the right thing the right way for the right reason. So they're vested in it, mm-hmm. and they're aware of not just phoning it in, so to speak. Mm-hmm. They want to do it like you said, the right mm-hmm. right way for the right reason. So they're a little sensitive. They're like, "Hey, I'm mm-hmm. I'm this is my goal. This is what I'm trying to accomplish." Interesting. So they're yeah. more likely to be sensitive to even constructive criticism. Yeah. So they're it's going to land on them from a perspective of. A lot of times, and these are just a few examples, is, well, gosh, do, depending on where you are in the spectrum, you know, all this is relative, yeah. is, gosh, do, does the individual think I'm lying or do they think I'm not trying? Oh. That's that's a typical first-pass reaction. So what we can do is with people that you see with that is is you counsel the – we coach and counsel the supervisors and bosses and things. Okay, when you talk to this person, be aware. Yeah that this is going to happen. And you talk to the individual as well. It's a two-way street. And you say, look, you're, for the reasons of all these attributes and the interrelationships, you're going to be, and, and I'm, I'm making a, a very brash statement that I would never make, yeah. is you're going to be a little hypersensitive. I would never tell anybody that. Right, you dance around it. You and... know, but don't be hypersensitive because this is not about you being being questioned it is about you being course corrected. And it's not an attack on your integrity or your character. Right. I think I fit in that category. Does that surprise you? Because I, I do. I want to be that person who goes out and does the right thing for the right reason, the right way. I, I, uh, and I, I am sensitive to that if someone challenges my integrity, you know, because yeah. I wake up every day and make a genuine effort, effort to be kinder and 
uh, and be a better person and so forth. That's, yep. very, that's very enlightening. Um, I'll mention Dr. Phil again. I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, you listen to his podcasts? A little bit. They're phenomenal. Yeah. Did you hear the multi-episode uh, uh, podcast on narcissistic personality disorder? No, my son is listening to that, though. It he is, is phenomenal. Loving it. He is loving it. So it's, I'm getting snippets of it. It's phenomenal. Just, we're talking about all these personality traits here, and narcissism came to mind. He broke it down into, I think it was three or four categories. The classical narcissist, we, we all know this person, deeply insecure, self-absorbed, um, uh, always needing recognition, always needing to be the center of attention, takes everything personal. When you mentioned that about the introvert, it made me think of it. And then he said you have the, um, the, the, the communal narcissist, and this was fascinating to me it, because once he pointed it out, I was like, oh, yeah, I know people like that. But I don't know there was a bucket for that, a label. Mm -hmm. And so these are people who are always out there. They're at every charity event, and they're donating big money and having their picture put in the paper because they did this for this children's hospital and all that. Equally as insecure, equally as self-absorbed, just go about it in a way where it looks like they're doing all this good. Right. But it's really just to stroke their ego uh, you know, and to get them prominence in the community and so forth, which I thought was fascinating. Then there was the uh, covert narcissist, which is the person who really can fly under the radar. They're not out there criticizing everyone to make themselves feel better. Um, they're not sitting in front of the mirror all the time. They're equally, just like the other ones, equal parts insecure and self-absorbed. They just go about it in a very passive way. Uh, an example of some... Um, Someone like that would be like, well, hey, man, you had a great idea there day. Why don't you bring it? Oh, they'd never believe me. You know, uh, every, every idea I've ever brought up has been shot down. And they, they just don't understand my brilliance, you know, yeah. uh, grandiose thoughts, uh, smartest person in the room type person. And then the last one was the malignant narcissist. And this is the person who genuinely either enjoys or, or get, gets something out of harming people as they perpetuate and practice their form of narcissism. Um, I was curious, Dr. Phil also said that narcissistic personality disorder is disproportionately represented in the upper tiers of society, the business mm -hmm. world, even the academic world, politics, um, uh, entertainment, that kind of thing. He said as a culture, particularly our culture, Western, there's winners and there's losers and mm -hmm. capitalism and all that, we so, sometimes don't even realize we're doing it. We celebrate these people. Right. Um, can you talk about, do you run into narcissism in what you do for helping businesses and it, how do you address it? It's not a specific trait or inner, inner relationship that we, that we measure for. So no narcissism, but do I run into narcissists? Sure. Yeah. I, are, I are one. What are some examples <laughs> so, of the seven traits that would rank high on the dots for someone? It would it would have to be a combination of the, of those dots to be, you know, there, there's a, there's a number of things there. There's a difference between just being arrogant and being a narcissist. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I used to love to watch professional wrestling in the seventies. I'm 80s. a huge wrestling fan and to Rick this day. Flair, of course. Flair. Yeah. So Ric Flair's a narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Rolex wearing jet yeah. flying, wheeling, dealing, kiss stealing, son of a gun. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. take a ride on Space Mountain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ric Flair. And the interesting thing about Ric Flair, you mentioned that, is that they say he lived the gimmick. Yeah, that's what I hear. So some guys can go out there and do that, and it's a character, right? Yeah, but he was like, really was. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I hear. Yeah. yeah I heard that's on some shoot, po on some shoot podcast I was listening to. Yeah, that's great. I didn't know we had wrestling in common. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah was, uh, and 
anecdotally or incidentally, um, Lex Luger, when he left WCW and went to WWF, became the narcissist. I don't yeah, know if you remember did. that. I do. That was his actual character. And his whole gimmick was he stood there in front of a three-part fold-out mirror. mirror and he's looking at it, Yeah, flexing and combing his hair and doing yeah. all this stuff. So, was, uh, As a wrestling fan, you'll appreciate this. When I lived in Austin... That's where the guy, Mark Calloway, plays The Undertaker. Sure, lives. yeah, Mean Mark Calloway. Mean Mark Calloway, he, he plays The Undertaker, and uh, this is going to be funny. He worked out at the same gym I did. Wow. So I and never he's spoke huge, to huge, right? He, yeah, he 6'11", is. 6'11", yeah, every bit of it? Every bit of it, and every bit of it. I saw him uh, um, step on the scale one time with just a pair of shorts on, and yeah. he had a six-pack on, and yeah. you know, a six-pack, and he was every bit of seven feet, and he literally tipped it at 298. That would have been my guess, 300, yeah. yeah. He was a big man. Yeah. And he, who, you'd never guess who his workout partner was. Uh, Paul DiGiorio from Paul Mitchell. Really? They drove matching Bentleys. The hair care line? Yeah. And it, back that far ago, he, yeah. that long ago, he drove a Bentley? They both drive Bentleys, matching Bentleys. They would both drive up to the gym and they're matching Bentleys. No way. And, yeah. And he's, I mean, they were just friends, but they had matching Bentleys and yeah. Wow. I didn't know he had all that money back then because oh, he hadn't really yeah. made it till he was the Undertaker. Yeah. He's, he's worth about 10 million. I read that somewhere. Oh, he's got to be worth more than that. The Undertaker? That's what I heard. Oh, I read. He's worth way oh, is he? Oh, Unless he just so. spends all his money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure he was making eight or nine million dollars a year. That's true. It's probably true. But he's been that. divorced, what, two or three times? Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You ever heard of marriage is grand, divorce is 100 grand? <laughs> it's cheaper to keep her. <laughs> we got off on a bit of a tangent yeah, there. Yeah, sorry. We started talking about wrestling. But it's interesting, though. When you're talking about psychology, you're talking about personalities. What greater manifestation of it is there other than wrestling, right? I mean, uh, professional yeah. wrestling. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. I always thought it was funny that amateur wrestling is arguably professional, and professional wrestling is arguably amateur or fake, right? Yeah, or it at really least, is. Yeah. It's funny. I went to, uh, my son and I went to, talk, this last anecdote I'll do on this. My, Take it to, we got time. My son and I went to, uh, when KISS was pre-pandemic. We oh. were doing their end of the world or end of the road tour. Yeah. And they came here to Louisville and my, my son's 29. So he and I went to see KISS and he had never seen him before. And he's, yeah. we, we lived in Austin, music, live music capital of the world. You know, he had seen a, tons of concerts but he'd never seen kiss before and i asked him afterwards i said so what is this he goes every concert i've ever seen is like seeing high school wrestling this is wwe oh nice the big leagues <laughs> yeah. yeah he goes this was this was like watching wwe and you know from a performance standpoint it's almost like professional the, the professional wrestling of rock and roll right yeah, i mean yeah. they're all painted up and yeah. wearing in these big larger than life outfits yeah. and pyrotechnics and yeah, all that that was cool that's a great that parallel cool. that's interesting um, well, let's, um, let's, let's segue to, um, the last segment of the show. My wife and I started a nonprofit called see good to be good. And the point of it is to get people who've been successful like yourself, uh, and, uh, prof- professionally or personally, uh, in front of folks that are looking for an example of somebody that, uh, may, maybe just graduated high school or college or has kind of, you know, lost their way and is saying, you know, I'm doubting whether I can make it in life. If I can be successful, if I can do good in my community, what are your keys to success? What brought you here? And uh, can it still be done? Can, pe- can people be successful even today? I'm, I mean, I'm going to have to take myself out of that success thing because I, I, I think I got a lot to go. To the extent that you've been successful, <laughs> um, as ha- however low that may be, <laughs> how did you get there? And those are your words. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I know it's trite, but to it's – but. Victory is never final, and failure is never fatal. Yeah. If you remember that. Yeah. Um, 
if you just get up and take one more step. And, and that's sometimes harder than any of us can even imagine. Yeah. Um, but until you're dead, it ain't over. Einstein had a quote, something I'm paraphrasing it. Um, so many people gave up right before they were at the finish line and they didn't yeah. realize it. They were so close to success or the finish line and they just gave up without realizing yeah. how far they were. Um, can you stress the importance of character and integrity in being successful? You know, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people that lack character and integrity that are wildly successful Yeah, you know, by, by our socioeconomic standards. They either are to get there or once they get there, they become... One way or the other. Yeah, yeah. Washington, D.C. to politicians, right? Yeah. A, a lot of, lot of stuff goes on. It, it uh, You know, so I don't know, unfortunately, and, and that's part of where my personal struggle is in life still, as I am still a bit deluded as to, gosh, it isn't fair. Life's not fair. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of it too is getting over the fact that life isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Life's not fair, okay? Yeah. So, what are you gonna? You, you either gonna change it or you're gonna deal with it. There's so much opportunity out there, even for people that may have a so-called disability or mm-hmm. disadvantage socioeconomically, or even mm-hmm. didn't get uh, a, a fair crack at a great education or a right. good home life. There's so many examples of people who endured past that. Um, it brings to mind, uh, you probably ran into this in your line of work, kind of the running joke in Silicon Valley and the upper echelons of, uh, corporate executive roles, uh, in the business elite in this country, particularly today is what, um, psychological disorder do you have? Do you have ADD? (laughs) Do you have ADHD? Are you on the autism spectrum? Bipolar. Those people are really highly represented at the upper echelons. Um, and one of the reasons I heard a psychologist explain that phenomenon was that it forces them to take a different perspective than most people. And when you have a different perspective, you can see opportunities other people wouldn't see. You can see a path to get there that other people might overlook, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Have you ran into that in your, uh, professional endeavors? You know, just in my own and outside of, you know, the human analytics, outside the human analytics, I'm a firm believer in that, uh, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, which is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Yeah. So you have to think differently. You have to think outside the box. Yeah. And at some point, and this is where I think I've candidly failed a lot in my life, so I'm allowed to talk about it, is too much risk taking. Uh, some people don't take enough. Some of us take too much. I, in my life, have taken too much yeah. um, on and have paid for it. It's cost me. Um, but you learned. Uh, hope and, you so. li- and you live to fight another day, right? Live to fight another day. You, in some days, you wonder if you will. You know, yeah. you, we, we've all we've all had our time in in that point of, gosh, am I going to make it? You strike me as so humble. Where do you fall on the dots yourself? Oh, I'm really arrogant. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, give me that breakdown. What does that look like? You're uh, are you introverted or are you extroverted? I I am a str- I am strategically extroverted. So okay. So am, when it's good for you, <laughs> I, exactly. I am I am em- both empathetic and analytical. So I'm a deductive analytic. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty assertive, uh, independent, venturesome, resourceful, self-starting, very self-starting. Don't need a kick in the butt to get going. Confident, very competitive, independent, self-starter. Yeah. Um, Are you motivated by what's in it for me? Yep. Okay. Yep. Both the recognition and the compensation yep. piece, the yep. the lifestyle. Yep. Okay. Yep. I, if I could be Ric Flair, I would be. I'd have the Rolex wear, and I'd be. Well, you kind of look like him. You, de- <laughs> you de- date one of the most beautiful women in Louisville, or you're married actually to yeah. one of the most beautiful women in, women in Louisville. Well, so you're doing yeah, pretty yeah. good, She's man. A, I'm, I'm, I definitely outkicked my coverage. That's yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's for sure. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I always, um, 
I always enjoy conversations the most with people that I disagree with because there's some, something to be learned from each other there. Absolutely. Most folks I talk to that have been success, successful answer the question differently than you did, and you're certainly entitled to do that. That's been your experience. Most people I talk to say that probably 80-plus percent of the people that are really successful did so having high levels of integrity and character, but that hasn't been your experience. You, would you say it's closer to inverted or... What would you say the percentage of people you p- interacted with and gotten to know actually did so while? 50, 50. Okay, so it's yeah. not it's not twenty eight either. No, no. Okay, but but it life's not fair. Yeah, and the good guy doesn't always win. Yeah, I heard uh, another wrestling reference. Razor Ramon when Razor. he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, yeah. WWE Hall of Fame. He said uh, he walked up on stage and he said, um, "Bad." See, so he said, uh, 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 "Hard work pays off. Dreams come true." Bad times don't last, but bad guys do. Yeah. And he walked off the stage. Yeah. Mic drop. I mean, he was up there for 30 seconds. Yeah. How good is that? Is. Some guys just get up there and start telling you every detail from when they were 16 to when they retired for yeah. 40 minutes. Yeah. I thought that was really poignant. Um, well, this has been fascinating. This is so far the ultimate respect the math guest because everything you do is respecting the math. The math. Yeah. Not the math. Yeah, that's fascinating. Whether it's science or popular culture or business or analytics, there's always an underlying process and there's a mathematical approach you can take to it mm-hmm. um, to is. be successful. That's that's interesting. Well, let's wrap things up. Okay. One more time, Michael Hall. He is a executive advisor specializing in human analytics. How can they, people find you so that you, you can help them find the right person for the right seat in their business. You can find me at Michael G. Hall on LinkedIn, uh, and I'm in Louisville. So okay. Michael G. Hall in Louisville, Kentucky, and LinkedIn. Uh, my email address is there, and my phone number is there, but I'll give my phone number. It's 502-303-2164. Give one more time on the phone number. 502-303-2164. And the nice radio voice and cadence there. I like that. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Hall, for joining us today. And thank you to the listeners and our sponsors for making this podcast possible and hopefully successful at some point. We'll still see you real soon in a future episode of the Respect the Math podcast. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Likewise.